3: From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on forum, comedy is a whole thing now, says Jesse David Fox, comedy critic for Vulture. It's enmeshed in how millennials and Gen Z communicate with funny videos on Facebook or lip-syncing a favorite sitcom scene on TikTok. It's how we process politics and presidential campaigns or deal with frustration and even personal tragedy. And yet Fox writes, people, including comedians, push back on attempts to take it seriously. We'll talk with Fox about why he thinks this needs to change and about his own analysis of comedy from the 90s to the early 2020s in his new book called Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic that Makes It Work. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Comedy has ascended as a major cultural force. Jesse David Fox, a comedy critic for Vulture and host of the podcast Good One, says there are more comedians of a greater variety performing for larger audiences across more platforms than ever. And we are turning to comedy to do more things than just make us smile or laugh. We're using it to understand the news, politics, and presidential campaigns— to address social tension, and also to have a release from it, to cope with personal pain. Fox says an art form this influential deserves to be taken seriously and explored deeply, and that's what he's done with his new comedy book. What have you turned to comedy for? Has a comedian or a comedy bit meant something to you? Jesse David Fox, welcome to Forum.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Really glad to have you. Your book is a serious look at the art of comedy, but it opens with this line. You write, this is a love story. Full stop, nothing else. Mm. <laughs> then you go into a story about interviewing Jerry Seinfeld. But, but why did you write that first line and just wanted to stand there?
4: Yeah, I, I couldn't get it out of my head once I thought of it. And then pretty quickly I realized I stole it from the TV show Fleabag, and <laughs> and I debated if I was allowed to do that. And then I and then I, I realized a few things, which is, can I lean into that? Can I then call back that I did that? Play with the fact that maybe some people reading the book would be um, wondering if I intentionally took them from Fleabag or not. And I and I wanted, I I, I wanted to make it clear that everything in this book be it the deep analysis, this sort of heady exploration where I'm quoting philosophers or quoting academics, to times when I'm being somewhat negative towards how comedy is being used, all of it is done out of love. And I want that to be sort of the overriding feeling that this is a book for people who love comedy and, and maybe would like to deepen that love.
3: Is this because you were also thinking about what you describe as the strong apprehension Of taking comedy seriously and appreciating it as an art form? Like, it's almost like if you do focus on it in that serious vein, it takes something away?
4: Yeah, I think so. I think when I, that was the sort of the first thing I felt I had to address, which is that I am, this book is allowed to exist. This book should exist. And, and that I am not at all trying to remove the joy out of consuming comedy. I am just trying to allow people to love it the way that I do. And I feel like I have a quite um, rich relationship to comedy that is loving and I feel like that is what I want to make clear that this is a this is a love story. This is not um, an exercise in sort of how clever I can be. It's really a matter of like, let's see what happens when we take comedy this seriously. Can it can it hold up to this level of scrutiny? Which I knew it could because I've been doing this for over a decade, and I wanted to sort of give that to people, and it is a it is a gift of love that I felt like I was able to do. If I can do anything, it is that.
3: Because looking at it more deeply, it sounds like made you love it even more. So that yeah.
4: can be yes, exactly.
3: Bad. So looking at it deeply, I do want to focus first on on political comedy sure, or the course. role of comedy in politics, because I do think that. Yes, the role of comedy to make us laugh deeply, to think deeply about social issues, to make us sort of escape from personal pain or even process tragedy Mm -hmm. and things like that has always been there, though I think it's deepened, changed and gotten more interesting and complicated in the last 30 years or so. But I think one of the areas where you really see comedy being taken seriously across a new frontier is in the way that it actually addresses the news, it addresses politics. And uh, I think you share this stat from 2004 which I think was sort of the first recognition of the status of comedians in political conversations. That one in five eighteen to twenty-nine year olds were getting their presidential campaign news from comedy shows. This is back in two thousand four. So mm. talk about that. Talk a, a little bit about that transition and who, of course, had key roles in making. Yeah, that transition of course. Happen.
4: Yeah, as I write in the book, it is not like this came out of nowhere. Though it seems like it. It seems like before Jon Stewart's Daily Show it just wasn't a thing we expected comedians to do. You know, As a, part of it is our faith in traditional mainstream news was um, eroding. Um, I think there is something like 70% of Americans trusted the news um, in 1980, or I can't remember the exact year, but then by 2016, that number is down into the 30s. So there was this sort of societal need for people to trust with this information. And comedians, via John Stewart, prove that they're quite good at being trustworthy, and they're quite good at conveying information about difficult uh, conveying information about difficult topics. You know, I I don't think John knew he was going to change the way we consume news. I think he just proved how good it was, how good comedians could be at it. Even though he would always say, "No one gets the news from us." It just clearly was not true. So many people did. I was one of those people. And now it's so normalized that, you know, all the way from Fox News now has more comedic programs on its uh, lineup. You know, I don't know what those, that stat would be now, because I think most people would be like, oh, I get my news online. But I think if you looked at how they got that news online, I think a lot of that news would be comedically t- transferred to them. So it is, it is, and, it, you know, to get deeper in it, it's partly about how trust is important in making people laugh. Like, regardless of news, you just sort of need a trustworthy person for you to feel comfortable enough to laugh at their jokes. And because of that element, you're able to sort of bring that trust to news, which is so important for people to, like, believe the thing that you're saying.
3: So talk about that relationship a little bit. You Mm -hmm. say that people tend to trust people who make them laugh. Why do we tend to trust people who make us laugh?
4: Yeah, I mean, you, you have to almost think not about people. Like, for a second, <laughs> we're going to take a step back and we're going to talk about monkeys and chimpanzees <laughs> or whatever, right? So the way um, animals, most animals laugh, it is some version of tickling or rough and tumble play, which is, is, which is what scientists explain it. And it's essentially, you are doing the thing that looks like fighting but you trust the person you are with to not be hurting you. And that sort of feeling, that state of play, is what allows us to laugh or what allows chimpanzees to laugh. If you then just sort of evolve that forward, I mean, even if you look at babies, it's sort of the same thing, right? It's, it's like they, they're they not laughing at some witty pun. They're laughing because of some version of this is a person I trust not to be hurting me. They're being silly. This is a fun place to be. So all of that evolves further and further to we as sort of sophisticated people need a higher level of trust to be able to laugh at more sensitive subjects, more complicated subjects. And that is sort of how it interplays, right? It it is a matter of, you know, the news can be so heavy for us to be able to laugh at it. We need to trust the person is either on our side or just is a trustworthy person. And then once they have that trust, then they could use it both to make us laugh or to inform us about what is happening.
3: And that is actually quite a great power to yeah. to understand from reading your book, that we are more likely to trust people to make us laugh and – so with that great power, of course, comes the <laughs> yeah. great responsibility of comedians to be, or someone like a Jon Stewart, to be accurate, right? And yeah. he did, at least for his part, make a huge effort to do that,
5: right?
4: Yeah, yeah. So I think there's, a, I can't remember the exact year, but a pretty sizable evolution happened um, once Adam Chodakoff who was a producer there, who whose background is, I believe, journalism, really was like, for this to work, we need to be as good as the news stations are in terms of fact checking. And I mean, I think if you look at those shows now, I believe they probably employ as many fact checkers as most major magazines do just because of the nature of budgets. And I think there's a few things that involved in that. One, they realize their sort of responsibility. They realize the sort of hypocrisy that would be there if they were making it up when they're accusing a Fox News of doing sort of the same thing. I think also there is um, a comedic benefit, right? The, the the more accurate you are, the the more invested the audience can be, and as a result, sort of increasing the stakes of a joke, which allows for a larger relief of the joke. That's sort of also built into it. And I think, you know, as much as these people like to—well, let me back up. People who—John Stewart and people who worked for John Stewart like to pretend they, they don't make the news. Everyone else is willing to acknowledge they're doing it a little bit, but— um, they they do such a good job because they they don't have um they're unencumbered by certain things news have to sort of tell the story straight and i think also they're just really good at talking that is the thing about comedians across sort of all parts of this book which is comedians are good at talking they're interesting to t- talk about you know they the, i i compare it to a substitute teacher who teaches you Poetry through the lyrics of Taylor Swift or, you know, they are interesting to listen to. And the longer you listen to a person, the more information they can tell you. Right. It's like, yeah, I don't think anyone when Jon Stewart first provided people real information on The Daily Show, I don't think anyone could have imagined what a John Oliver episode would look like. But that is a guy talking just at you for 25 (sighs) minutes about subjects you did not care about before sometimes did not care about before the episode. The fact that he can keep you entertained and informed is a rare skill.
3: Yeah. Well, we're coming up on a break, but I do want to ask you if you could just talk a little bit about how comedians, especially even John Stewart as he was trying to do this, were sort of handling that new power of being believed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think
4: it it be I think I think when you look at John Stewart those first few years, you'd sort you'd see a push and pull, right? Um, where sometimes he would be quite strident, right? He would go on Crossfire and lecture these people about how they were. But then also on that episode of Crossfire, he'd be dismissive of everything he does, right? I think he sort of liked to use it as opportunities to sort of punch with more force, but did not, he still would uh, back away and be like, I I, I don't take any responsibility for what I do. I follow crank anchors or whatever. And I think that sort of, that sort of stance is a, a really comedian way of being about it. And I think, filters uh, is also related to the general idea i talked about the book about not being willing to be taking themselves seriously it's not yeah. just audience it's that comedians themselves have an aversion to being taken seriously even if they're doing serious work
3: we're talking about the changing role of comedy and how comedians and audiences are reacting to it more after the break i'm mina kim
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Jesse David Fox, senior editor and comedy critic at Vulture, who's written a new new comedy book called How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What do you turn to comedy for? Is it to make sense of politics or the news? Or is it to distract you from difficult things or to comfort you as you're processing personal pain what's a comedy bit that helped you make sense of the news or social issues or social tensions you can email forum at kqed.org find us on twitter facebook instagram or discord at kqed forum you can call us at 866-733-6786 866-733-6786 i, I do want to ask you so based on this new sort of recognition that we're giving to comedians for their capacity to help us understand what's going on in the world and trusting us to trusting them to tell us what's going on accurately. I'm wondering about what obligation you feel like comedians have to the truth when they're sharing personal stories or personal experiences.
4: It's a a very complicated question. (laughs) Um, Where to start? I think I'll say two things. First is the, the live audience and then a filmed piece, which I think is a distinction worth noting. And so truth is a fudgeable idea in a lot of art forms, and comedy is not um, removed from that debate. And I think, though, when people see a stand-up comedian, they assume they are telling the truth, they are doing as much manipulation as any sort of artist might do in terms of conveying their lives. And and not only that, that sort of... and manipulation is somewhat determined by what the audience is responding to. Uh, the example I talk about in the book is this story called The Machine by this comedian Bert Kreischer. And he, he, it never was working. And, and he realized the reason it wasn't working was because he was too committed to proving it was true instead of just listening to what the audience was responding to. So instead he added sort of a false ending that gave the story closure That was just not a real thing that happened because that's what the audience felt the story needed. So that's always what is happening when a comedian is going on stage. They're seeing where the audience is at and adjusting the jokes accordingly, even if it is autobiographical. And that is the process. And I think it is a beautiful thing, right? I think that because what you're able to achieve when you're really open when you're doing that is that you're getting at a truth that is beyond just sort of your personal subjective truth and getting to something that is more related to what the collective feels is true. And that is a rare thing for an art to be able to do. So, and and especially if you're sort of opening yourself to be vulnerable to express complicated things with an audience. That is sort of the live audience beautiful thing what you're doing. It becomes obviously so much more complicated when it is put in front of when it's filmed and put into a different situation with a different context. And it is definitely more complicated with when the stories you're telling serve a sort of larger societal point. And obviously, in the case of Hasan Minhaj, when that societal point is part of because your work outside of your stand-up is sort of making political arguments. But the comedian... So obviously that's all that sort of makes it more complicated, but like ultimately the comedian is as um, responsible to be as truthful to the audience as any art as any other artist is. In so much as when you look at a painting, you're not you're not debating is this exactly what it looked like. That is my that's the hope that I have for it. Which means when you see a comedian telling a story, I don't want you to either want to fact check it or think it's not true. I think you're just trying to. To see it as they're expressing what their truth feels like and being able to convey that is much more interesting than literally recounting the facts and figures of their life, at least to me,
3: yeah, I think what i'm struck by in that in that experience with Hassan Minaj, and I think you talk about this a lot is. Less the question of whether or not his stories were truly true or not, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they were emotionally true or factually true or whatnot, yeah. but the fact that people care so much about whether or not yeah. he told the truth. <laughs>
4: yeah, that's so funny. That was my that was my first reaction before I read the story, which was like, wow. And I think that I was not I was surprised. I guess I shouldn't be surprised because I, you know, I, I write partly in the book to explain this, so I felt people that didn't know. But I I think there is something deep in the stand-up audience relationship where the audience barely even thinks the comedian is doing anything. Like, this this has existed with comedians for, like, a hundred years. Like, they'd be doing what sound, what sound like as really jokey-jokey stand-up, and the audience would still think they're just making it up on the spot, right? So that sort of feeling has continued even when the comedians are doing... Like obviously, more ambitiously crafted stories. So I think people get really invested in truth and and get really invested in the stories. And then because they're really invested, it feel like they feel the truth so viscerally. So when you find out that they might not be exactly true, you have one of two options. One is you it is a sort of um, b- boomerang where you felt so strongly one way. now you're sort of shocked in the other direction. Or you sort of can accept that, um, that you can accept that, th- th- that ultimately, um, sorry, I'm trying to remember. Uh, you can accept that, like, that was just sort of the experience that they're trying to give you to kind of convey their story. And that is, I think a lot of people. A lot of people would prefer being naive, maybe about it, or or are naive about it. So I think the reason that it was such they such an investment was they didn't know that a comedian was doing this. They feel huh. maybe tricked, right? And to me, I would not think to be tricked, just like I wouldn't be tricked if I learned that a magician did something, right? Like it, and I, you know, as I I often say, like comedians are magicians. They're not wizards. They're not doing. A magic trick of them there. They're not t- just telling you a random story from life and somehow it's impossibly funny. They're a magician. They've crafted this thing to get a specific response, be both laughter and be both pathos and explaining themselves. But if you're really invested in the sort of illusion that this is a real thing that's happening here, when you learn it's not, it's going to be, you know, a strong reaction the other way.
3: We're talking about the the power and popularity of comedians and comedy today uh, with Jesse David Fox. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation, telling us what comedy, what role it plays for you. And let me go to caller Judith in San Francisco. Judith, you're on.
5: Yes, hi. Well, some 40 years ago in San Francisco, there was a conference uh, that was for a weekend. And it was called The Power of 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 um, comedy and um, comedy and laughter. That's right. The power of laughter and play. And Mm -hmm. it was it was it was an amazing kind of an event. It was for people like me who had cancer at the time, and it had different seminars and people like um, Norman Cousins from the. um, uh, He was 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 a big advocate. Of the the power of of
3: laughter and play, wow, Judith, you're making are you me aware think... of... yeah, oh sorry, are you aware of it um jesse i
4: have not i've not I've not heard of this this conference. I am aware of the sort of power of play play is the um theory of comedy that I subscribe to there's a variety of theories and and the one that I think makes the most sense of what it feels like to be in a comedy show or watching a comedy is play and as I said, it's not unlike the chimpanzee, which is if they if they understand that they can experience a sort of dangerous situation in a playful way that allows them to laugh. And there is something really freeing about that. It allows you to sort of raise above your situation um, because, you know, there have been studies about laughter and being the best medicine or, you know, as that saying goes. And, and obviously it depends on what your ailment is and what you're looking for it for. So like, yes, it can't sort of cure any specific ailments. However, if the thing that you're dealing with is um, um, an inability to laugh at your situation, then obviously comedy is really great at that. It is ability to—these people are professional laugh makers. And if you can't do that because of you're just too in your own situation, it offers a certain sort of aloofness. And that aloofness is lightening. And that lightening allows you to sort of carry on with your life.
3: Yeah, you've talked about how the role the comedy played for you in dealing with personal tragedy, and uh, do you want to say a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, the the book is sort of framed around this a little bit. So, you know, my mom passed away when I was young, and then um, more recently, my brother passed away, and and after, and partly the after my brother passed away, I was already. Mm-hmm. Um, I already was writing about comedy, and I knew what comedy could do for me, and has done for me. So, I and I was I was having a really hard time processing it, and I was feeling particularly detached from society, and and couldn't really get out of it. Um, and I decided to go to a comedy show with the and and it's it's quite lofty of an expectation to have for a comedy show, which is I'm going to go to this comedy show, and it's going to heal me of all my problems, and. So, and I, I was very fortunate. I, I picked the right comedian, which is a comedian, Reggie Watts, who, for those who aren't familiar, it, it's somewhat hard to describe, but he just sort of starts a song. And what that song ends up being and what that song is about will vary based on how the audience responds. And it's so as a result, you know, the audience is so involved in it. As you know, that's what I. That's what I hope for all comedy. But this audience really has to be for him to know where the show's going. And I felt really connected to the audience. And, and it felt less like I was one person dealing with one thing and we were 250 people um, just dealing with what it means to be a person, not to get too metaphysical about it. Um, and as I said, you know, that ability to lighten things is a great gift and not something that it's easy for other art forms to achieve and and what makes comedy special you know other art forms are great and they can do certain things but the thing about comedy is that lightening and quality and you know life can be quite heavy sometimes
3: yeah actually i want to play a clip that you provided to us this is of maria bamford talking about while well, sharing with the audience about her mother's death
6: oh my goodness how delightful You guys, uh, some people love life. Uh, (laughs) I've always been on the fence about the whole thing. I could go at any time. Uh, What I would really like is a sharp blow to the head that I do not see coming, right? (laughs) Surprise me. My uh, my mom loved life. Uh, My mom could squeeze joy out of an AT&T customer service call. Sandeep, so can I ask you a personal question? Are you Hindu? Well, I was just wondering, because we've been on the phone for over two hours. Is your phone hot? Because my phone is hot. So, are you going to the river pilgrimage? Or are you going to the Kumbh Mela? Yeah, right, right, of course. Well, I know that bridge collapsed and 40,000 people died. No, I know, I know. But you're going, you're going. No, you gotta have faith you do. I'll say a prayer for you. Of course I'll hold.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so talk about why you wanted to share that clip.
4: Sure, yeah, it makes me cry. Um sorry. Um it's I think there's a couple reasons. One, I think Maria is uh the greatest comedian alive. And I think you can see it already in just that one minute clip. She did that on the late uh the late show with James Corden. Or late late show, which is not a setting where people usually talk about death let alone open with it and she's able to do certain tricks to get this audience who maybe not know maybe doesn't know who she is who definitely was not expecting a set like this on board and so you sort of have certain sort of joke writing techniques the certain things she does with language to sort of soften the blow of what she would be revealing um how she uses her voice is incredible and the thing that I really highlight in the book where, you know, the, I write about this, is how she uses the word loved. She doesn't say at any point in the set that her mom passed away. All the way, the only way you know is because she introduces the idea of death early on, and then she says, my mom loved loved life, right? And just using of that past tense allows the audience to understand the sort of space they're in without yeah. sort of holding them back. And it's... the The other context of it is... This was I can't I honestly can't remember what year it was they say it's two thousand two two thousand twenty two so she did this set I believe so this is a set she worked on during the sort of height of lockdown and you know and she she works on her set unlike any comedian on earth she'll do comedy she'll do sets for one person she'll do sets for at four o'clock in the afternoon she did sets on Zoom right away I saw one show of hers where. Uh, she did a set late at night, then went to sleep and then said, OK, goodbye, like and kept the camera on while she was sleeping and then said goodbye. Thank you. When she woke up in the morning. And th- the thing about the, you know, earlier in the book, I write about 9-11 and sort of com- how comedians help with that. But the thing about what happened with COVID is that it was not a discreet event where it happened and then we process it. Right. It is a thing that was constantly happening. And as I say, it's sort of hard to process loss when you keep on losing at that moment that was still while people were dying from it people are still dying from it now and her ability to allow us to take a step back both laugh at a sort of laugh at tragedy and also process it is a beautiful thing and um it was really important for me to have that towards the end of the book because it was really meaningful for me it did allow me to um stop and think about the sort of years had passed since my brother had passed away since covid and it's as good as comedy can be and uh you know i was asked to provide some jokes to talk about and i was like i don't know if i can think of anything better and as you heard like i'm talking about pretty heavy subjects and i'm getting quite emotional but people are laughing through all of that and that is that is pretty incredible yeah
3: well, Michael tweets, I think we all retell anecdotes from our lives, and most of them are pretty flat. Editing them to make people laugh or feel some other emotion makes sense to me. Yeah. At that point, we become characters in a play. Rick and Citrus Heights writes, all comedy is definitely supposed to be funny, but at the same time, by the same token, it is also supposed to be serious, depending on the comedian. To me, George Carlin was one of the greatest comedians of all time. Let me go next to caller Dro in San Antonio. Dro, you're on.
5: Hey, good morning. Been enjoying your conversation a lot. Um, I I think comedy is one of the higher human achievements um, because it allows you to get perspective and it allows you, offers you a different way of looking at taboo subjects. Comedians are like the vanguard of free speech. They are always testing the taboos. They've been around since court jesters. You know bringing up subjects that you don't want to talk about directly, but you offer it in a palatable way, and it gives you perspective, um, both in your own personal life and in a, a cultural experience also. Um, you know, George Carlin, Dave Chappelle, Sarah Silverman, um, you know, uh, Louis C.K., uh, all of these great um, comedians are always pushing our our cultural milieu, as it were, and offering us a new way to look at it and giving us new information. So I'll I'll leave it at that. Well,
3: Drew, thanks for the comment. And of course, a lot of those names that Drew mentions you wrote about and analyzed sure. because they have become quite controversial and we're coming up on a break, but um I so I do want to get into them a little bit more afterward, but do you just have okay. anything quick you want to say? We've got about 30 seconds.
4: Sure. Um I think the the comedians have long been valued for how, for what they've been able to say and I think that is a valuable thing that comedians have been able to do but I do think it underrates how they're able to do it and how that is able to be received and in the book when I do talk about some of the comedians he mentioned I want to uh, refocus how the audience, how various audiences might be receiving it in a better way to, so comedians could can do that job um to appeal to more people in a more inclusive way, if they so choose.
3: All right, we'll have more with Jesse David Fox and the changing role of comedy and hear from you, our listeners. After the break, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
1: I don't be funny
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the cultural significance of comedy and how much it's grown over the last 30 years. Jesse David Fox has looked at the 90s to the 2020s and... Dissects how comedy has helped us make sense of the world, help us respond to cultural moments, has provided us a language to come together, to heal, or even protect each other. But it's also done a lot of controversial things as well. And just before the break, we were talking about that. You, our listeners, are invited to share what comedy has done for you. You can share them at 866 6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or finding us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. And uh, this listener writes after watching a horror movie i always have to cleanse my palate with an episode of modern family <laughs> i've definitely turned to comedy after a horror movie um but you know i do want to ask you about this complaint that we've heard in comedy a lot jesse that it's that, that it's become too pc there are too many things we just cannot say right and that it's supposed to be this space of free speech have we kind of resolved that yet or what do you think we are on that question
4: That question has been around as long as comedy has been, so I don't think we're ever going to resolve it. Um, There's been complaints like that for the last 120 years, some version of some people complaining about what comedians are saying, then some comedians or comedy fans um, complaining about the complaints and saying some version of people are too sensitive today and um, some version, they didn't have the term political correctness 100 years ago, but some version of that sensitivity will be the death of comedy. 120 years have gone by. Um, it uh, People continue to evolve. Those people who uh, were too sensitive got old enough that they started calling the new young people too sensitive. Um, comedy did not die over those course of 120 years. People are saying it now. Comedy is by far stronger than it's ever been. Um, a lot of the comedians who complain about how people are too sensitive these days, are the most successful comedians in the history of all time. So it is hard for me to uh, be too worried about the impending death of comedy, considering uh, the state of things. So maybe they could be resolved. Maybe if everyone uh, listened to me right now, we would stop having that very specific conversation. But... uh, I'm aware how it is complicated, and it's sort of wrapped up with a certain ideas of both speech, language, and, and, and comedy, and also the context in which words are used. So it, it's complicated, and I think it too, too often it's simply just gone down to like, well, what can I say and what can I say? It's like, well, it doesn't really work just like that. Um, and, it, and because it's so complicated, it is why it is a debate that has been around for so long.
3: Yeah. But how do you define fearless comedy? Because it isn't the comedians who say things that you're not supposed to say.
4: Sure. Yeah. I think fearless is often used for comedians who aren't afraid of um, the reaction their their jokes might get. Right. You, you think of a lot of the comedians the last caller mentioned. Um, we'll talk about subjects of people who might be marginalized in one way or another and not are unafraid of the ramifications, which, again. There are not that many ramifications considering how successful they are. To me, what I find actually fearless is comedians who are genuinely afraid of how society might treat them for speaking about um, mental illness or actual ailments or their their mar- uh, marginalized identity and, and are legitimately afraid but still persist anyway because they know there is something noble about that pursuit – that there are actual ramifications of it. Um, Maria Bamford, when she started talking about mental illness on stage over 20 years ago, was risking being able to work ever again. Actually, people do not employ people if they think they might have some sort of mental illness that will make it hard for them to work with, especially in Hollywood, who is constantly looking for ways to discredit you. Same thing I, I talked about Tig Notaro, and she was very concerned about talking about her diagnosis of cancer on stage because she thought it would make her unhireable. That is risk. That is professional risk. Saying things about a group that is less power than you on on a large platform, which you're being paid tens of millions of dollars for, is not risk. Though... The people who do the latter fashion themselves as being sort of risky, edgy comedians, when often they are giving that audience exactly what they want, which means they aren't being edgy. They are essentially hosting a rally. Hmm.
3: Let me go to caller Krista in Menlo Park. Krista, you're on.
7: Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I love this subject. I love comedy. I've been a fan since... Basically, I could start talking. And I'm one of the big believers that uh, laughter is the best medicine. And I grew up way before I was really allowed to or should be listening to the late night heroes of of comedy. Jay Leno, Carson, Letterman, and all such. And, um, you know, I was wondering, you know, why do we have to stay up so late to watch these people? And basically, it was so probably young viewers couldn't be watching things like that. But, um, you know, it started sort of a habit, I think, for people you know, watching comedy sort of later or as a spe- special occasion and starting their days with news and sprinkling the day with news. Um, and, you know, throughout COVID and post-COVID, I, I think like some people take a break from listening to news in the morning and starting their day off in a negative space. Whereas I start with programming like you know, KQED and things like that to get me in a better mood. And I started really starting off with comedy, um, getting fresh, starting the day out laughing, and throughout the day. So I get YouTube push notifications from Jim Gaffigan's YouTube channel. Um, I love to see Netflix with with specials from comedians being top one, top two with new comedians uh, showcasing new artists. So I love the fact that comedy is becoming more available, and being able to kind of sprinkle my day through that to just stop me in what I'm doing and be able to offer a laugh throughout the day.
3: I love that description, um, Krista. You know, do you want to talk a little bit about the relationship that comedians have to the needs of their audience? Mm. Because I feel like Krista's describing a lot of needs that she's finding comedy fulfills, but you have this interesting point about how we are driving that as comedy's audience.
4: Yeah, I think, she, I think she makes a really astute point, which is essentially comedy used to be a thing that aired at a very specific time, right? Not only, do, you know, late night shows, but comedians used to only be on late night shows. The only way you would know about a new comedian is the last five minutes of The Tonight Show, which is very late at night, right? So, and and I think there was a few reasons. I think people did not respect comedians to think of them being earlier, Um but comedy has always been proven to really being able to adapt to new technologies, to new mediums. And part of what I describe is why there has been this ascent of comedy, as there's been such a rise in different mediums for com- comedians to be on. And what the data has shown, you know, I've, I've heard this from people who have worked with Netflix, is that people don't want appointment comedy. They don't want to be like, oh, at. um... 1230 a.m. is when I watch comedy, they actually prefer for, to be um, to turn on comedy when they are in the mood for it. When, you know, if they've just binged a series, they'll be like, oh, I'd love to watch comedy now for an hour something like that. Having that accessible is much more in in line with essentially what it's like to see a comedian, which is like you enter a space and you're in the mood to be seeing a comedian and the co- it makes it easier for the comedian to do their job because it is not a one-way relationship. A comedian is cannot force comedy onto an audience. It is an interchange and the audience has to be on, the, on board as well. And I think that caller really captures what it is like to be a comedy fan right now, which is the relationship to comedian o- and audience is so close because they are there exactly when they need them to be.
3: Do you want to talk a little bit about just how much Chris Rock's audience determines his comedy?
4: Sure, yeah. I, I love Chris Rock. Chris Rock was really formative for me. And it was a it was i've seen him live 3 times and every time he's bombed which it means does really really poorly um the first time i was uh, a teenager i saw him at the comedy cellar he was going to do a set of jokes from the MTV movie awards and i was like oh my god this is going to be so great and all the jokes were bad and they did poorly and i was befuddled by this and then i saw him again 16 years later and he came out on stage and bombed again but this time i was prepared which is, I knew what he was doing. So, to get a sense of it, this is a show in Brooklyn. Let's say there's maybe 200 people there. This is at the end of a show. He comes out wearing his winter coat, keeps it on the entire show to try to communicate to the audience. Don't get comfortable. I'm going to leave any minute now. But again, he does this for a full hour. He talks really quietly, almost in a modern tone, and would say ideas, or maybe the half parts of jokes, but not a full joke, and would see where the audience would respond. But he But he would not do the Chris Rock thing, the cadence you imagine. And if the audience did respond, he would sort of undercut it to try to stop the laughter from happening, to try to stop the building of laughter. And what I learned is that Chris Rock essentially bombs on purpose. He believes that an audience is truest to their reactions to things if they're not riding off the energy of his celebrity or just the room. So he will essentially... Do a really bad comedy, and and get a sense of like what is such an undeniable idea that even if the audience is in a bad mood, I can get them to to react or laugh in some ways, and then he sort of builds from that, and he keeps on building that, and he keeps on listening to the audience, um, and it it is why, especially sort of when he's at his peak and he had had enough time to work on specials, it really was like those those. those Two specials in the the mid and late 90s are, like, to me, the pinnacle of, like, how hard a comedian can kill, which means do really well with the audience, um, (laughs) because of how intimately he understood exactly where they were at. And so when he turns on all of the things that we think of as Chris Rock, it really hits.
3: So if the audience is this determinative, what do you think they're communicating when they— are not necessarily demanding that something always be funny, like you see mm. the popularity of shows like The Bear or the kind of reaction that Hannah Gadsby's Nanette got.
4: Yeah, I think funny is a funny word. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Funny is an interesting word because we associate funny with laughter. And it makes sense, right? Like when you imagine some, you see a thing that was funny, you're imagining laughing. However, there's a lot of things that are happening between those moments where you laugh. You know, sometimes it's just a person explaining a situation and then at the end of it, you laugh. But that state, you're sort of explaining the situation, you're not laughing, you are still feeling the energy of funny, right? Like, I, I go to go back to the chimpanzees, when they're running around, they're not laughing at every moment, but they're in the playful state. And um, over the last f- 10 years, there's been a rise of what I call post-comedy shows and specials. Which just means comedy shows that put you in this state in some way, but do not give you the relief and the release um, that you expect from a comedy show. And they all do it for a purpose. You know, The Bear, it's because they wanted to feel tense, right? The, especially the first season. They really wanted to capture how tense it is. But they didn't want to feel so tense that you're, like, overwhelmed by gloom. They just wanted to convey how it was and keep you in that sort of frantic state. And with Nadette, Hannah Gatsby had a lot of jokes at the beginning, and then they they sort of removed that so you can see what it feels like to not have release to further the point they were trying to make. These were all sort of deliberate artistic decisions to sort of um, confront this um, one-to-one relationship that the audience often has with comedy and laughter and... And I, I, I compare it to movements that happened to, in a lot of other art forms. Um, the sort of the rise of modern art, uh, is, and especially modern painting, was a, a rejection of the need for paintings to be representative, to be only beautiful, and allow them to sort of achieve different things. Or um, post-structuralist architecture was, we don't need buildings to be inhabitable. We just want them to adhere to the ideas of what is a beautiful building. For comedy what I call post comedy shows or, or or specials are just sort of divorcing that relationship just so you can look at comedy differently and think differently and appreciate the art differently. It doesn't mean they are better. It's just sort of an interesting thing they're trying to do because no one's done it for the most part. I mean, there's always been moments here and there, Richard Pryor had things here and there, but like, I think they, they see this as a moment where we can do it because not unlike as a call mentioned, we have access to funny things all the time. On our phones right now, if you're active on TikTok or YouTube, an algorithm will find you something that you find that you'll laugh at. Well, if, if that's the case, if, if comedians don't need to be the only people providing you laughs, well then maybe they can try to do something beyond laughter while still being comedy. Mm.
3: Well, let me go to caller Lucinda next and remind listeners that we are talking with Jesse David Fox, Vulture Comedy Critic, and you are listening to Forum.
2: I'm Mina Kim. Lucinda, you're on. Hey, good morning. I The last caller gave me a great memory of doing the army crawl down the hallway to be able to peek around the corner and watch Carol Bolt Burnett after I was supposed to be in bed. So thanks for that. Um, when I uh, was about 13 years old my father died and our family you know didn't talk about it so I I struggled with making connections with my peers and what I would do what I found that that worked for me is I would listen to comedians like Eddie Murphy or George Carlin and I would memorize their jokes and I would tell them at school so people would like me and I would you know give them something to be, uh, uh, happy about. And then years later, um, sadly, my husband was murdered. And as you can imagine, going to the funeral home and filling out all the paperwork, uh, for the funeral and how the grief, the overwhelming grief, I remember sitting there thinking, I've got to make a joke to just cut through this, this tension and so when the lady slid the paperwork across the desk for me to see how much it was going to cost I looked at it and then I looked at her and I said do you give a local discount and my friends just <sighs> burst out laughing it was like what we all needed to just you know get through this awful awful experience and
3: uh wow this I, end so, I,
2: I, yeah you that's know. an
3: incredible story
2: yeah so you know comedy is so important, and uh, i uh, I love comedy and I try and get out and see live performances as often as I can because it's just such a great way to release um, yeah. grief and sadness and and tension of of the day so hmm. thank you to all the comedians who are listening. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, Noel on Discord writes, I appreciate turning to W. Kamau Bell and Hassan Minaj. Bell is able to address racial issues to make them easier to swallow. There is one more thing you do in your book, which is you actually dissect uh, how jokes work. And we did get a question like mm-hmm. that. And I did want to give you a chance to do to talk about why certain things may work. This listener writes, I'm curious why the comedy in shows like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia works. The show revolves around those objectively horrible, selfish characters who say all kinds of politically and socially offensive things, but somehow it's still funny. It's almost like we're <laughs> laughing at the characters, not with them. Do you have any insights?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, it's context, right? So... It's understanding the rules of the show. I I, I reference uh, The Office in the show about context, but it's a similar thing, which is fans of the show understand, one, the creators are not, though they play these people, which allows a little sort of tension, the creators are not these people. They Not only that, the creators hate these people. The show hates these people. The show wants you to understand that they things are... They understand it's wrong. And because you have that context, then you can be in a playful state because you understand uh, that everything is is essentially the opposite, right? <laughs> it creates a agreed-upon understanding of irony. And when you have that, then there's a juxtaposition that is funny, which is like, this is an awful thing. However, I feel safe laughing at it, not unlike yeah. the chimpanzees, right? It's awful there's to fight that- your fellow chimpanzee, but <laughs> community- it's playful, <laughs> yeah. it's okay.
3: Well, the book is Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic that Makes It Work. Jesse David Fox, thank you. My thanks also to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. And thank you, as always, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim.
6: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation.